The scripture reading for today's sermon will come from John 16.33 and Romans 13.11-12. I have said these things to you, that that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we ever first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Good morning. Appreciate your uh, attendance here with us today. We enjoy having everybody here. We have a lot of visitors and we're grateful to have you here. I also appreciate the, um, all the uh, preparation uh, and participation. Those of you who've already been involved in services today have, um, <clears throat> have let us in. Uh, I don't know if some of you weren't here maybe for the 9.15 to 9.45 period, but we have an opening Bible class out here that Ben Huffman led, and Stephen Beard is going to be uh, collaborating with him in that on the Gospel of Mark. I appreciate that. Greg's Lord's Supper talk was excellent. The singing, the prayers, all the effort that's gone into teaching the little kids' class at 9.15, all of that, family Bible education has been excellent. I appreciate it. All right, so this is a second of a two-part series of lessons. If you were here last week, you may recall that we started talking about this statement in Romans 13, where Paul says that uh, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Night is far gone, the day is at hand. It's an image of dawn, right? That darkest part of the 24-hour cycle, the darkest part of night. And then piercing that is the sun just cracking the horizon, and, and then light So it's not 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we know it's coming. That's what he's saying here. The the night is gone, the day is at hand. And last week we talked about what that had to do with uh, the world we live in, what we should expect of it. But basically what Paul is doing is encouraging his readers to allow this new reality of of the coming of the light to, to, uh, to sink in, to orient their lives in a new way, to change them from the inside out, based on that new reality. So this morning we're going to consider again the notion that disciples of Jesus Christ are people of the dawn. People of the dawn. He doesn't just say, guess what, this is really cool. He says, no, the the dawn is breaking. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Our lives ought to reflect the new reality that we live in. And last week we saw that as Christians... We are people really living in two kingdoms, in a sense, two regimes. We have our feet in two different ages, to use some of the language of the Apostle Paul. The future age dawned with the coming of Jesus, our King, but will not be consummated until His second coming. And so this old age of darkness yet persists. And all you got to do is flip on the news, open up your phone to your news feed. Darkness is everywhere. Um, it's literally everywhere. And it's part of the world we live in as well. It's associated with the one Jesus calls the ruler of this world in the Gospel of John. Referring to our adversary, Satan. Uh, It's associated with those that Paul repeatedly in his epistles call the principalities and powers and world rulers of the present darkness. And so this kind of two-age existence, this already but not yet aspect of the kingdom that we're members of, this tension is actually the context for the whole of of, of the Christian life. It's the context in which we 
as a church of the Lord exist and live and operate. We live, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, at the ends of the ages. Not age, ages. And not just the end, but the ends of those two ages. They overlap, and that's where we live. We're the people upon whom the ends of those two ages, the old age of darkness ruled by the ruler of this world, and the new age which was inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, but is not fulfilled all the way, but it will be one day, because the dawn has already broken into the light. And so it's that tension between having already come to the city of God, to use another biblical image, and yet not having fully come to the new Jerusalem, the city of God. You can see this at the end of the book of Hebrews. Let me just illustrate this. To, we get this concept down and then we can move on to applications this morning. So isn't this interesting that in the same epistle, the letter to the Hebrews, notice the tenses here. Hebrews chapter 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The very next chapter, I mean, I don't know how long it took, took him to write from there to down to Hebrews 13, 14. A few paragraphs, he says, we still seek the city that is to come. So are we at the new Jerusalem, God's city, or not? No, yes. Yes, no. That, that tension, the now but not yet, or the already but not yet, as theologians have come to call it, is, is woven throughout uh, the, the New Testament. That's where we live. All right? So today we want to answer the so what question. If last week we addressed the question of when we live or where we live, today we want to address the question of how, therefore, should we live. Last week was on the context of our lives. Today it's going to be on the conduct of our lives. And those two are inextricably connected. So we're going to see that this is very related to our being a sent people. That's our theme for the year, a kind of missional outreach, evangelistic consciousness and practice. We're trying to inculcate that in ourselves as God's people. Well, being a sent people, being a mission-oriented people, people who point their neighbor to the king, very much connected to this idea of being people of the dawn. So first of all this morning, people of the dawn are a people who are waiting on the coming of the Lord. Waiting on the coming of the Lord. In John 16, 33, one of the two verses that was read this morning by Greg a few seconds ago, I want you to notice how Jesus himself, though he is the king who comes into the world and brings his kingdom. Remember, John the Baptist says, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is, is here. It's, it's at hand. Yeah, things are changing. The regime is going to change. But Jesus still, though he knows all that and, and, and brings that into the world, acknowledges the present struggles that we still have with, with darkness. He calls it tribulation in John 16, 13. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you, notice this, will have tribulation. Why is this happening? Why, why, I, you know, I became a Christian. Why is this? Christ said, in this world, you will have tribulation. There's been a regime change, but the old regime isn't going down without a fight. But notice what else he says. I've said these things to you so that even in this world in which you will have tribulation, in me you're going to have peace. The Greek word which was used to translate the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word, shalom, 
This is Irenae, I'm sure. I haven't looked it up, but I'm pretty sure that's it. But that, that was used to translate when Hebrew scriptures, when they were translated into Greek, Septuagint and things like that. It was shalom. It's this, one of the key biblical words of just well-being. Everything, every, every part of the web that, 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 that is creation, that humans are you know, sort of the high point of, uh, you within your own soul and mind and heart and, and body, all, everything. He says, you can have that now, even though you're surrounded by tribulation. And so take heart. I have overcome the world. So it's true that he, tribulation's still here. But it's also true that he has overcome the world. It's like dawn. That's a perfect image. It's broken in. It's inevitable. Light's coming. You can't, you know, turn the sun back to the other side of the earth. Um, it's coming. Not here all the way, but it's coming. You've got tribulation, but I've overcome the world, so take heart. Your version in the second uh, highlighted uh, word, a phrase there, may say something like um, uh, courage, take courage. Is that the New American Standard? Yeah, or uh, be of good cheer, old King James. How British is that? <laughs> be of good cheer, 1611, England. Um, but that's the point. Peace, good cheer, courage. All of that can come because of what Jesus is doing and has already started to do. And I, what I want to notice here is how this confident expectation of what's coming, in fact, what has already penetrated the darkness, if that's inside us, that can radically change our disposition. It can radically change our perspective, our, the way we think and feel and react. Be of good cheer. Take heart. Take courage. Have peace. In Philippians, Paul puts it this way. Verse 5, he says, Let your reasonableness or your moderation or your gentleness be known to everyone. That ought to be evident to, to non-Christians around us. The Lord is at hand. He's not way off somewhere like a deist God, you know, who started everything and then backed off. He's at hand. He's available. God came near in the incarnation. God with us, Emmanuel, he's still with us. Lo, I'm with you always, he says. And so we don't have to be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6 says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. If we have this kind of disposition, peace-filled, courageous, good cheer, reasonable, moderate, gentle, even in the face of tribulation, and Paul's in jail when he writes these words in Philippians 4. Think of the impact that that kind of positive, hopeful, calm disposition would have on our neighbors. Our neighbors, and truth be told ourselves half the time, we are consumed and pervaded by anxiety and stress and fear, negative news, despair. What if we were, like the dawn, a beacon of light in the middle of all that darkness? So the first thing people of the dawn practice is that fine biblical art of waiting. One of the most common themes in the Bible is wait on God. Isaiah 40, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. We need to learn to wait well. Peter puts it this way in his second epistle, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. The very thing Isaiah talked about at the very end of his uh, prophecy, Isaiah 60 through 65 or so there. 
is this coming new heavens and new earth. And, and Peter says, we're waiting on that. And we need to learn to wait well. But not only are we waiting on the coming light, but we're also bearing witness to the coming light. And that's our second point today in terms of practical takeaways for being people of the dawn. What does that look like to be people of the dawn? Well, one is we wait on the coming of the Lord. We have a different story. We know how it's going to turn out. And so we patiently learn to wait on that. But it's more proactive than that. It's not just not freaking out when negative things happen. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a set of marching orders in a way. And we bear witness to the coming of the Lord as well. Paul puts it this way in our text, Romans 13. He says, since the night is far gone and the day is at hand, one of the things we have to do is put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. Every day when we go out and we're among people who are overcome or they're about, about to be overcome with darkness, we have, we have donned in the morning this armor of light a kind of a tire uh, that protects us from the darkness and that stands out in its brilliance against, you know, it's backlit by the darkness of night, if you will. And we're wearing something different. We look different. Um, and the fact that the enemy is still out there um, doesn't change how the story we know is going to end up. C.S. Lewis, we'll quote him too, um, in Mere Christianity, this famous analogy that he uses. Basically, enemy-occupied territory. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. All right? And that's what we're involved in. Or to take a line from Lewis's fiction, in fact, the first of the Chronicles of Narnia series, series, Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And that's kind of the mentality that we should have. But I want you to notice something here with this point. The weapons of our warfare, if we're wearing the armor of light, we need to understand something that has often been conflated and confused in the last 2,000 years. Because Christians in the name of Christ have often used the same kind of weapons that the world uses. And they just put a cross on the shield or whatever else and call it Christian. But it's no different. It may not be coming from any different place psychologically or anything. Other than just, well, we're pretty sure we're right. Well, everybody thinks they're right when they pick up arms. I mean, you, unless you're psychotic, you, you believe your cause is true. So it's not just that we're fighting for a different side. We're fighting a different kind of fight. It uses different weapons. It wears the armor of light, not just another set of the armor of darkness with different icons and decals and you know, um, symbols. We don't use the typical worldly weapons. Paul makes this clear in a couple of places in his uh, letters. In Ephesians 6, he says, put on the whole armor of God, very similar image here, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You're going to have a different kind of armor, a different kind of weaponry, because it's a different kind of fight. We're not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting rulers 
authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then in 2 Corinthians 10.4, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So the point, this is a very subtle point, and I think we have to remember this when we sing songs like, and we haven't sung this here in maybe ever, Onward Christian Soldiers. It's, it's not just saying, go do the same thing, but you're a Christian as you, it's a different kind of battle, is the New Testament picture. All right? So we aren't just fighting darkness with more darkness. Does that make sense? We're bearing witness to the light. And therefore, our armor must be the armor of light. So how do we bear witness to the Lord's coming, to the fact that the light has dawned? To use the words of Fleming Rutledge, and by the way, these two sermons are very influenced by uh, some reading I've done by Fleming Rutledge. Just excellent stuff on this idea. And I just want to uh, acknowledge that. Um, but one of the things she says is, the cosmic change of regime has been accomplished. I love that phrase. You can't always tell, you know, but there's a different regime that's already in place. Battle's still going on. That happens in almost every war. Uh, there was inner civil wars in the American Civil War. So Missouri had two different governor, uh, uh, two different governments. So, you know, for, uh, different other states on the borders did. You got these two ones claiming to be the legitimate. And that, that's often the case in, in military conflicts. And in this case, Christ, when he comes, establishes a cosmic change of regime. But everybody doesn't recognize it yet because it hasn't been consummated all the way. Battles are still being fought. How do we then bear witness to the Lord's rule, to His coming, to His advent, to His arrival? Let me suggest to you that one way to sum this all up is to say that we do this by daily choosing to practice love rather than fear. Our conduct should come from love, not from fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. So if one of the main motivations we have, if, if our psychology, if our theology is largely driven by fear, that ought the very, I know there's certain things we ought to be afraid of, but if you basically can be netted out as just another version of fear-driven people, that ought to be, we ought to be going, all right, alarm should be going off. Because that, nothing's more worldly than that. The, God is love, according to 1 John. And then it goes on to say, perfect love, when you've got complete God in you, and you really look like God, and you're acting like God, and being faithful to God, you are driven by love, because that's God, not by fear. So what does it mean to bear witness to the light? By being motivated and, and uh, animated by love as opposed to fear. Let's just go through some examples. You know, fear characterizes people who are uncertain about outcomes. Right? Nothing scarier than the unknown, especially if the unknown might not be friendly. And if we're uncertain about outcomes, if we operate from a, a position of deficiency, of need, then we're probably going to be animated by fear. We're going to be obsessing on our own needs. They're not covered. We're not sure about it. We're uncertain. The deficiency there, at least possibly. So we start fixating on our own safety, our own well-being. 
And we can dress it up in all kinds of theological language and churchly language. We're still probably fight, fight, fight or freeze people. We're, we're basically lizards. Right? We're just, we're just lizard brain going on. And, and we, can, we put all kinds of theological stuff on it and we dress it up. But is it, is it you know, if it walks like a duck, I'm mixing animal metaphors now. Um, but when we, when we are coming from a place of uncertainty about outcomes and we are characterized by fear, we start making the taking of control crucial. It's about taking control. It's about holding power. Because if we don't, we don't know the outcome. Coming from a place of deficiency, of uncertainty. That's fear. And this kind of fear, if we're honest, has come to characterize many so-called Christians in our time. Indeed, let me suggest to you that it has become normalized. It's almost an expectation. that It almost is a, a, a synonym for faithfulness in many quarters. If you're a faithful Christian, you're kind of obsessed with fear. Marilyn Robinson, I don't know if you know that name, she wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning novel a few years ago called Gilead. Really good. But this is from an essay she wrote on fear. She is a believer of some sort. I don't know her theology or anything like that, but I know she uh, professes Christianity and writes a lot about it. Here's what she says. It was written just a couple years ago, two, three years ago, I think. Contemporary America is full of fear. Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Fundamentally, fear is not perfect love casts out fear. You want to be like God who is love. Again, she, she makes two observations. America is pervaded by fear these days. And guess what? Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Those who forget God, she says, be recognizing the fact that they make irrational responses to irrational fears. Granting the perils of the world, it is potentially a very costly indulgence to fear permanently. Put no checks on your fear. That could be that could come back to haunt you, she's saying. And to try to stimulate fear in others just for the excitement of it. Or because to do so channels anxiety or loneliness or prejudice or resentment into an emotion that can seem to those who indulge in it like shrewdness or courage or patriotism. That's a big one today. Here's what she says. No one seems to have an unkind word to say about fear these days. Unchristian as it surely is. In other words, it's, main, it's been mainstreamed and normalized. It's even an expectation in many quarters of, of those who would call themselves defenders of Christianity. It is manifestly unchristlike to follow the one who defeated fear and then be obsessed and pervaded by fear. And so our behavior and our conduct and our thinking, if we're children of light, if we're people of the dawn, needs to come not from a place of fear, but from a, a place of love. We don't need to fear because the one who came is coming back. And in the interim, he promises to be with us until this age is overtaken by the coming age. The very last thing in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' assurance to his disciples, surely I am with you always to the very end of this age. The way of love, by contrast, 
operates not from deficiency or want or anxiety about whether my needs will be met, but from a, a kind of radical fullness, from a wholeness that God provides us, and from a confidence that all will turn out well because the future is His. My times, David wrote in one of his psalms, are in your hands, Yahweh. My times, you, you hold my times, my life, my future in your hands. God has our back and God is in control. And so in all of our interactions with other people around about us, non-Christians and neighbors and so on, we, we're free, we're liberated from this compulsion to serve ourselves out of a survivalism of some visceral sort. We're liberated to go serve other people, to seek their welfare sincerely and, and radically. So what does this mean concretely? Let me give you a few examples. When I am wronged, when somebody wrongs you, that's part of living in the world. We've all been wronged. We've all wronged people, you know, umpteen million times. You've done it in your own household, every one of you. The husband's wronged the wife. The wife has wronged the husband. The parents have let down the children. The children have let down the parents. The children fight each other. They love each other. You know, everybody. We all do that all the time. So we're talking to everybody. When you are wronged, you can forgive. Not just words, but deep, radical forgiveness. Now, what fear would do is cling to its victimhood, right? Fear wants to focus on, no, you, you need to remember forever that you wronged me. In fact, I'm going to keep you under the thumb of my control by reminding you that frequently. Right? That, we do that. <laughs> and we can be really sophisticated with it. Or worse, we plot revenge of some sort. Again, maybe very subtle, you know, sophisticated forms of revenge, not cowboy movie, you know, with Colt 45s and all that, but just, just the psychological kinds of revenge that we can hold on one another. All of that is not real forgiveness. And if you, guess what? If, you're, if you've got to take care of your own needs, psychological, emotional, and otherwise, forgiveness is insane. You're going to want to hold on to control. It never works. That's a different point. But think about the freedom from that you have to forgive deeply, truly, because you're motivated by love, not fear. When we see needs in other people, financial needs, physical needs, material needs, we're, we're able to liberally meet those needs knowing that such generosity is characteristic of our King. He's giving to us like that. You know, he gives seed to the sower, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, and so he'll give you more when you give we can remember passages like first john 3 17 if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does god's love abide in him well that's hard to do if you feel like if i give this away i won't have enough but what if you've been assured what if you have a god who says in the minor prophets of the old testament just continue to give the amount I told you to and watch and see what happens. I'm going to open the, the floodgates of heaven and bless you like you can't even imagine. If you're giving to others, I'm going to give to you. That's a promise repeated all through Scripture. Do we believe it? That helps us to act out of love, not fear. When we encounter injustice out in our world, we can address it. Right? Amanda sent me... a. a, a link to a song this morning. It's, it's one of my favorite uh, songs that you'll hear this time of year. Oh, Holy Night, 19th Century Hymn. The slave's chains shall he break. 
and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's the, that's the reign of God. That's the kingdom that's broken in and is coming. And so why do I care about injustice? Because my king cares about injustice. And that's the world he's bringing that I claim to be a part of. So a passage like Isaiah 1.17 doesn't just slide off my back. It goes deeply within me. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. He's not saying just don't make people fatherless. I've never shot anybody's mom or dad, so I'm good. Isn't that saying a little more than that? He's saying go out of your way to bring justice to other fatherless people. You go plead the widow's cause. You didn't cause her to be a widow. Hopefully, we got other problems if we're talking about that. No, this is an active, beyond yourself and your household kind of passage. You're seeking justice everywhere. You're correcting oppression. You're, of course, don't oppress people, but go out of your way to do something even beyond that. Correct it. Bring justice. Plead the widow's cause. While a self-oriented, fear-driven person might be confident to merely avoid doing injustice, well, I didn't perpetrate it, so I'm good. Or maybe care only about injustice done against their own kin or their own kind, quote-unquote. Whatever that means from the perspective of God in whose image every single human being is made. But a, fear, a fear-driven kind of mentality, you know, sort of, hymns that, per, that passage in, passage like it circumscribes it down to, well, like the, the law expert in Luke 10 who asked Jesus, well, what are the great commandments? And he says, you know the commandments. What's written? How do you read it? He says, love God, love your neighbors yourself. Jesus says, do it and you'll live then. Kind of dumb question. Good job getting it right. Remember the guy's next question? Who is my neighbor? Let me, let me tighten that up a little bit so I'm not culpable for all the stuff I never notice. I've trained myself not to notice. Love does much more than any of that. When I'm tempted to turn others into mere objects or obstacles in relation to my selfish agenda, whether subtly or overtly, love remembers that every human being is made in the image of God and that His Son, the ultimate image bearer of God, is coming back to judge the world in righteousness. So in all these ways, we in the church bear witness to the coming King and the kind of world He is bringing. Thirdly, and briefly on this one, it's really kind of a conclusion. We've got to be people who are watching for the coming of the Lord. We wait, we witness, we watch. In Mark 13, at verse 32, Jesus says concerning that day or that hour, you know, when the Lord returns, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So no one knows when it's coming, when the return of the king is coming. But, he says in verse 33, be on guard. As a, by virtue of the fact that we don't know, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. And then Jesus says, therefore, stay awake. This is a, he invokes here the image of a sentry, right, who's on guard. How effective is a sentry who, go, who falls asleep in the middle of the night? He says, stay focused. 
we need to be intentional with our daily lives. Sometimes we just bounce through our days like a pinball, which some of you don't know what that is, but <laughs> we're, we're, we're always an effect. We're never a cause. We're just a result. Ding, 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 whatever, you know. Or to use the metaphor that we're using in, from, from Romans 13, rather than lights with our own internal, you know, um, uh, luminescence, we're just mirrors. And what we're reflecting is more darkness than light. So we mustn't let our priorities get misaligned, disordered. We've got to post ourselves like our own sentry as a lookout against subtly absorbing the values and the cares of the old regime. That's the main slippage we've got to worry about. Luke 8, parable of the, the sower, one of the soil types, remember? They represent different human hearts and responses to the the seed of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom. The seed is sown in all these different kinds of soil. One is the thorny soil. And later in Luke 8, Jesus answers the disciples' question about what, what's he talking about here? What do these different uh, images represent? And he says about the thorny soil, and I think maybe this can, can, can resonate with many of us. I know it does with me. He says, and as for the seed that fell among the thorns, they are those people who hear the word, they hear the gospel of the kingdom, but as, and it, looks, it implies that it's, it takes root even, right? It's not the wayside soil where it doesn't even take root. It just takes root. But as they go on their way, these people find the seed, the word of the kingdom, choked. Choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. So what does this have to do with mission? Well, we can't very well be light to the world if our own lights have been extinguished, right? I mean, if we've lost our way, how are we pointing somebody else to the way? If we're just more darkness, angry, afraid darkness with a cross on it, what a counterfeit. We need to look like the light. Be the light. Because the light's already dawned. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll close after this, you are, and he's not speaking to individuals here, but the whole group. It's actually ye are. If we had a King James, you'd see that. It's, it's second person in the Greek. Ye are, y'all are, you guys are, light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that's what we do is we wait on the coming of our Lord to finish what He started. It's not in question. We have the script. We know how the story ends. But God allows us to be volitional free will creatures and to choose. You know, we're not robots. And the adversary is still working hard. And sometimes it's going to look like he's winning. Sometimes he will win some battles. But we need to get up every day and remember that we're people of the dawn. Amen?
Thanks for your attention. Let's all stand together and sing.